by the morning of March 5th, 1836, 26-year-old William Barrett Travis knew his fate was sealed. He gathered together the defenders of the Spanish mission known as the Alamo, surrounded by thousands of Mexican troops under the command of General Santa Ana. And he told them he saw three options. One was to surrender and most likely be executed. The second was to flee and most likely be butchered by the surrounding soldiers. They were severely outnumbered. Or third, to defend the Alamo to the death and give time for Sam Houston to rally the Texas forces. Travis knew exactly what he intended to do, but in a moment of dramatic flair, he pulled his sword from its sheath and drew a line in the sand. And he said, all of you who are with me in defending this little fort, step across the line and make your decision. Of all the men who were there, only two didn't step across the line. In all fairness, one of them was Jim Bowie, and he was so sick, he was on a cot. And he commanded his men to pick him up and carry him across the line. The other was a French soldier of fortune. His name was Moses Rose, and he chose escape, and he actually did get away, and he's the one who told the story. Because on the next morning, all of the defenders of the Alamo would perish in that battle. I am not a native Texan, but I love that story. And I love that story because it tells us a couple of truths that are evident in our story in the Bible. One is that courageous decisions will most often cost you something. Courageous decisions are often costly, but it is courageous decisions that are usually proven right. It is the decision to be courageous, to stand and be counted, to refuse to cower under pressure that makes heroes. And I would say to you that while courageous decisions are costly, so is indecision. And this morning, I want to talk about the danger of indecision. Because indecision also carries with it its own unique cost and danger. The great philosopher Jimmy Buffett once said, My problem may or may not be indecision. That in itself is an indecisive statement. At heart, I think most of us want to be decisive. But, you know, there are some areas where it's just difficult to be decisive. For some reason, nobody in my family can be decisive when we ask the simple question, where are we going to go eat when we decide to eat out? I have no idea why it's like the biggest decision in the world and it's nothing, right? We spend more time debating where we're going to eat than we do making major purchases or committing our life to some cause sometimes. But this morning, I want to talk about indecision from this passage. And my hope for you is that by the time we get to the end of our time together, that you understand that sometimes choices must be made and the right choice can make an eternal difference. Elijah had stepped across his own line in the sand. 
Earlier, we have studied about the reality that Elijah was called to be a prophet. He stood toe-to-toe to a wicked king named Ahab, and he said, because you have introduced worship of the false god Baal to my people Israel, I am going to turn off the rain like a person turns off a water spigot. It's not going to rain here for three years. That means there's going to be a severe drought. And with drought comes no crops. And with no crops comes famine. People are going to starve. God is going to judge what has happened in Israel. Well, as soon as he confronts Ahab, God tells him to go and hide, which we find kind of peculiar. But God had something to do in the life of this man, Elijah. There were some things to purge out of his life in this time of hiding. There were some times to put in his life and replace some of those negative character traits. And so God sends him to a place called Cherith, where God miraculously provides for him. God sends him to a widow in, a, in the nation of Sidon, which was like the epicenter of Baal worship. It's, it's uh, amazing. God hid him in plain sight in a lot of ways. And God also allowed his power to flow through him to resurrect that widow woman's little boy when he died. And now God has developed Elijah to the point that he is ready to bring him to what is really the penultimate moment of his life at a place called Mount Carmel. And what he tells him is this. After three years of development and waiting and hiding, In chapter 18, verse 1, now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go, show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. And so Elijah leaves the widow's house in Zarephath and he begins to walk through Sidonian territory into Israeli territory. Now remember, he is a wanted man. Ahab says, I want him dead or alive, preferably dead. And as he walks, he runs into a guy named Obadiah. Obadiah is the head of Ahab's household, but he is faithful to the one true God. He was an insider who was part of the resistance. Here is this guy, Ahab, and what he does is he hears all the plans of the king and all the plans of Jezebel, and he's going behind their back, and he's protecting like prophets of God. Jezebel had slaughtered people who were faithful to the one true God. So Obadiah learns of this, and he hides a hundred of them in a couple of caves just to keep them alive. And he hears of their plans, and he's protecting those prophets. But when he meets Elijah, Elijah says, Obadiah, go tell Ahab I, I want to talk to him. <laughs> Obadiah's, this is Obadiah's response. What sin have I committed that I should go do that? Like he's going to kill me. Or even worse, I'm going to tell him you're here and you've been off hiding for three years. And by the time we get back, God's going to carry you somewhere else. And he, you're, he's not going to find you and then he'll kill me then. And Elijah says, No. I'm not hiding anymore. I didn't come to run. I'm coming to see Ahab. And so Obadiah goes and gets him. And here's how the story picks up at verse 16. I just summarized 15 verses for you. I'm trying to make this as short as I can. Verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. 
Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, and this is where we're going to focus this morning, on Elijah's statement to the people. Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Let's talk about the indecisive nature of these people. The first thing we need to know is that indecision means being torn between two. If you're an indecisive person, you're torn between two points of view, between two perspectives, between two worldviews, between two opinions. There is, a, there is a pulling back and forth. And so in this passage of Scripture, the prophet Elijah says, how long will you hesitate? How long? Do you know if anybody introduces a question to you and they begin it with the word how long, what they're implying is it's been too long. Parents, you got a teenage daughter and she's got a boyfriend and you don't like him. That is the prerogative of every father of a teenage girl, by the way. Just, just don't like him. And if you do, pretend you don't, right? But let's say in this case, parents have got good reason and they think he mistreats her and doesn't, doesn't treat her like a lady. And, and so mama looks at teenage daughter and says, how long are you going to put up with him? You know what mama's saying? It's been too long. You've been putting up with this for too long. A boss has an employee come to him and the employee says, how long are you going to put up with that other employee? They never get here on time. They always leave early. They never finish their work or finish their projects on time. They throw the rest of us late. How long are you going to put up with that? The employee is saying, it's been too long. And Elijah is saying to the children of Israel, how long has been too long? How long you've put up with Baal worship. How long you've wavered back and forth between Baal and the true God of Israel. How long is too long. And he says, how long will you hesitate? That's the way my translation of scripture puts it. If you're reading from the King James Version, it says, how long will you halt between two opinions? Kind of, kind of going this way, and then no, we go this way. No, I'm going this way. The, the issue here is to be torn between two. The word comes from a Hebrew word that means to stagger. It's like a person who's intoxicated and they can't walk in a straight line. And they kind of weave over to here and then they kind of weave over to this side. They go back and forth. And that's exactly what the spiritual life of Israel was like at this time. They were wavering between worshiping Baal and worshiping the true God of Israel. This true God who had made Israel a nation out of nothing. Remember, there was no nation Israel. There was just a man and a woman, and they were senior adults, and God says, I'll send you a baby. 
And Abram and Abraham and Sarah had a little boy, and that little boy had a family. And out of that family, there came 12 sons, with, there became 12 tribes. And out of that, those 12 tribes, there became a nation. That one God had brought them into being. That one God had rescued them from slavery. They were slaves in Egypt, and with his almighty power, this one true God had brought them out and parted a Red Sea, and they walked through on dry land. This one God had given them this land. The land in which they were living was a gift from their God. And he said, I'm giving it to you for all generations. This is the God that they should have been serving. But the false gods of the nations that surrounded them beckoned them and called them and drew them in. And so they wanted to be like the nations around them. They knew their God, but they wanted to be like the world. And there was this pulling. There was this going back and forth. There's a biblical term for this. And it's called to be double-minded. To hold two opposing views that are absolutely contrary to one another. That in logical thought, you cannot embrace them both, but you're torn between them, so you go back and forth. The Bible has no good things to say about being double-minded. David wrote in Psalm 119, 113, I hate those who are double-minded. That's strong language. Jesus spoke about double-minded people in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. You're either all in or you're all out. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Jesus calls us away from double-minded thought, from embracing the world and trying to hang on to the kingdom of God. At the same time, in the book of James... James says that it is our double-mindedness that means that we're not blessed. Some of you wonder why I don't get answers to prayer. Some of you wonder why there's no power in my life. Some of you wonder why you don't experience God's peace and presence in trials and in turmoil. It's because we're double-minded. We're trying to serve God and love God and hang on to the things of this world at the same time, and it's pulling us apart. James 1, 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. James goes on to say that what that person is like is like a person who is tossed back and forth by the waves of the sea. Every time I read that passage of Scripture, I think about a moment in my life. My wife and I used to love to go scuba diving. It was our hobby, and we'd, we'd go down to Cozumel. It's just some of the most beautiful diving in the world, and, and I would still just love to go. We just, we just don't do that anymore. It's just other things have crowded in. But uh, one particular dive, we had been out, and when, you, uh, when we got back on the boat, it was kind of it was kind of rocking back and forth. The waves had kind of picked up just a little bit. It wasn't violent, but it's just enough that the boat's kind of rolling, you know, with the waves. And what most people don't understand is that when you scuba dive, you go underwater, obviously, and you get neutrally buoyant. It's a feeling of weightlessness. And so when you're under the, underwater for 45 minutes to an hour for a couple of times, and you try to stand up on a boat that's rocking back and forth, it's just pretty hard to do that. You can't get your legs underneath you for just a few minutes. On this particular dive, we go back to the, uh, back to the dock, 
And the, the shallower the water got, the more choppy the water got. So the boat's really rolling when we get back to the dock. And so you got your kind of, you don't have your sea legs and you're trying to get off the boat and onto the dock. And it took kind of perfect timing because the boat would kind of rock. And so you'd want to time it just right to, to get on the dock. And there was this one particular lady and um, she was a little scared. It was obvious. And she, and, and she put one foot on the dock and she had one foot on the boat and the boat kind of moved and she went this way and then went back to the dock and she went kind of this way but she didn't make up her mind and in just a few seconds the boat sort of lunged a little bit away from the dock and all of a sudden she falls right down between the boat and the dock and I must confess I laughed okay it was funny I don't care who you are that's funny but I kind of turned away and you know ha <laughs> you know ha but the truth is, it was kind of dangerous because if the boat would have slammed back the other way, she gets hurt really bad. There is a price when you're indecisive, when you're double-minded. And that is what Elijah is trying to convince the people of Israel about. And you say, Bob, this is a great story about idolatry, and I get it. We ought to love Jesus and serve him. But I don't have a Baal in my house. I don't have a Buddha in my house. I don't have any of those false gods. What are you talking about, Bob? No, you don't have an idol like a golden one or a wooden one. It's just that we Americans serve different idols. The idol of popularity and acceptance. The idol of prosperity and the American dream. The idol of power and most of all, I believe the highest idol that most Americans have and most American Christians have is the idol of pleasure. That to create some sort of sense of heaven on earth. And the reality is that Elijah calls on the children of Israel and he calls on us to make up our mind, to make a commitment. The truth is that we love the convenience of indecision. For many years in American foreign policy, in the 1800s, American foreign policy was controlled by something called the Monroe Doctrine. James Monroe was a president of the United States in the early 1800s, and his foreign policy was embraced as that, and it controlled American foreign policy for a long time. Now, some of you go, okay, that's kind of a head-scratcher. That's a long time ago. I think I heard of that somewhere. What's that got to do with this sermon? Not much. Except that Philip Ryken, who is a theologian, says that American life today is controlled by a new Monroe Doctrine. Or oh, it has nothing to do with a former president. It has everything to do with a former model and actress. Someone once asked Marilyn Monroe, the 50s pinup girl, sex symbol actress, if she believed in God. And Marilyn Monroe responded, I believe in everything. A little bit. And that is exactly where many American Christians are today. It is the new Monroe Doctrine, the Marilyn Monroe Doctrine, to believe in everything a little bit. Philip Ryken wrote, It is the basic principle of American culture. People do not want to be intolerant, so they believe a little bit in everything. A majority of Americans believe in God, the Bible, Jesus, the power of positive thinking, the basic goodness of humanity, luck, alien life forms, and checking their horoscope every day. 
The only way to believe all these things at the same time is to adhere to the new Monroe Doctrine, to believe everything a little bit. Unfortunately, that's where so many of us are. But listen to me. You cannot be devoted to Jesus and craft your own truth. You cannot passionately pursue Jesus and selectively decide what a sin is and what sin isn't. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and craft your own morality and decide what is right and wrong. The truth is we are called to a decision not to hesitate, not to halt, not to waver between two. So, Elijah says, here's the choice. Make a decision. And that is, which God is God? Here's what the way Elijah puts it in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, well, follow him. Just be all in. Pick a God. Choose a God and follow him. Now, here's what you need to know, okay? When you make a choice, you're making a commitment. And every commitment has a consequence. You cannot choose the consequences. You only get to choose your commitment. The consequences flow out of that. Here's the truth. I want to lose weight. I want to lose some weight. But I also want to eat bluebell. I like bluebell. Now look, if I choose to eat bluebell, I can't choose the consequence that I get to lose weight. The consequence naturally follows, right? And whichever God you choose to serve, the consequence will follow. There's a consequence for both. There is a cost to making this decision. And one of them may cost you in this life, but one of those decisions could cost you for all eternity. Or it might cost your children or your grandchildren for all eternity. There is a choice that you have to make. So, so which God ought to be your God? Well, let me give you a, a little pointer. Let me point you in the right direction. There's some things you ought to look for in your God. One of the most succinct definitions of who God is, is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul wrote those words, and it, it's sort of this poetic flourish, but it contains really some important aspects of who our God is. First of all, he is the only sovereign. To be sovereign means to be in control. I'm going to help you with these words. To be sovereign means to be almighty. And Paul makes this comparison. He says, he is the king over every king. He is the Lord over every earthly Lord, over every earthly power. He is almighty. That's who our God is. Our God is immortal. And he alone possesses immortality. That means to live forever. You do not possess 
immortality in and of yourself. Immortality, living forever, is a gift from the God who lives forever. And you only receive it by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So if you want to live forever, you need a God who is immortal. Not only that, but he dwells in unapproachable light. That speaks to his infinite perfection and his purity. Everything about him is perfect and pure. Even his motives, they are perfect and pure. That means he is good. The Bible says his mercies are without end. That means his grace, his love, his mercy for us is infinite. It will never, ever end. That's the kind of God you're looking for. And that's the kind of God who's worthy to be served. That's the God that the children of Israel knew. But they longed for this, this God like Baal that, that they thought they could feel and touch and and somehow would meet some other need in their life. And that's exactly where we are. We are indecisive people when it comes to this. In American culture, we honestly believe that we can follow Jesus on Sunday and have our foot in the world Monday through Saturday or Sunday afternoon through Saturday night. And it's all going to work out okay. We're a little bit like the little boy that I saw on social media a couple of years ago. There's a football game between the Detroit Lions and... Um, and the Kansas City Chiefs. And it's in Detroit because everybody around him has got on Detroit stuff. You know, you can tell. And so he comes in. He's got on his Detroit Lions t-shirt. And they scored and he cheered for them. And then the Kansas City Chiefs scored. And out of his backpack that he brought in with him, he pulls out a Kansas City Chiefs jersey. And he puts it on and he cheers for them. Well, the Lions drive down the field and they scored and took the lead. So what does he do? He takes off the Kansas City Chiefs jersey, puts stuffs it back in the bag, cheers for the Lions. But the Chiefs come roaring back. So he's reaching in and putting on his jersey again. There are a whole lot of us in the church that are putting on our Jesus jersey on Sunday morning. But we take it off when we're confronted with some moral issue during the week. When our friends pressure us or tempt us, we're taking off our Jesus jersey. And that is exactly what Elijah is calling on the children of Israel to do. He's saying to them, decide. If Yahweh, the one true God, is God, then serve him. Give your life to him. Follow him at all cost. If Baal is God, just run after him. If the gods of power and prestige and popularity are really going to bring you fulfillment, just go ahead, run after them. But understand this, there's a choice that you make and every choice is a commitment and every commitment bears a consequence, every single one of them. And so he calls on them to answer, but I want you to see what they do. Look at what happens. Elijah gives this impassioned plea. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. I, I want somebody, just somebody to step across the line with Elijah. I want somebody to say, I'm on Yahweh's side. I'm on the side of the God of Israel. But the people did not answer him a word. Their indecision had left them indifferent. 
when challenged on spiritual things. And I fear that for much of the American church, that is where we are. You hear the words of the prophet, and we do not answer him a word. Because it will cost us something. I got to give them a little break. I got to cut them a little slack. The people of Israel didn't answer them a word because they knew what Jezebel and Ahab did to people who stood up for God. They killed them. And so they remained silent. But I need you to know something. That there is coming a moment, and I believe it is coming soon, when the mushy middle is going to disappear. That line, that fence that some of us are trying to straddle is going to be topped off with razor wire and you're not going to be able to straddle that fence anymore. There's coming a moment when the gray area that we'd kind of like to live in where we got Jesus and we got a little bit of the world and we kind of play them both off against one another, the gray is disappearing and the stark black and white is coming into reality. Right now in corporate America, in some corporations, not all, but in some corporations in America, they are saying to top executives in their company, if you go to that church, if you're a member of that church where the pastor preaches that abortion is murder, that homosexuality is a sin, that God made two genders and only two genders, if you go to that bigoted church, you are in violation of the values of our company and you can't have a job here. That's happening. At the University of Kansas, a young lady who, wanted, who had wanted to be a Division I cheerleader, I mean, she wanted to cheer for a, for a, a university like that, she got a scholarship. But the summer before that, she worked at a Christian camp. And so her social media feed was filled with scripture and sometimes clips from sermons and, and things that, that were explicitly Christian. And when she got to the University of Kansas, she was called into an office and she was shown her social media feed and she was told that her values were intolerant and that if she wanted to be a cheerleader for their school, she would have to go to their diversity training, which is the modern day equivalent of re-education camp. She got up. She walked out, and she left the university. She said, no, I'll drive down a stake. I got a line in the sand, and this line I'm not crossing. And you said, boy, that, that sounds like a hard choice to make in Kansas or California. It's coming to you. It's coming. That mushy middle is disappearing. That gray area is being more narrowly defined. And you're going to have to make a call. Which God is God? And you need to understand that an answer isn't, isn't enough. A commitment has to be made. Years before this, centuries before this, Joshua had warned the children of Israel that this moment would come. Here's what he said in Joshua 24 verse 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And here's where he drove down the stake. Here's where he drew the line in the sand. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think some of us are going to have to make that call sooner rather than later. We're going to have to say, this is where we stand. And understand that with our commitment may come an earthly set of consequences. But the other consequences are eternal. And I can't bear that for my child or for my grandchild. Now, how do you do that? I've been thinking about this. I did just, just didn't feel like my message was complete. So I want to answer the question, how do you do that? So here's what I want to, I want to give you three thoughts on how you actually do this. The first is this. You must determine what is non-negotiable in your life. You've got to determine where the non-negotiables are. Now, let's be honest. There are some things that maybe we in the church have taken a strong stand on in the past. That, that Come on. They were kind of ridiculous. I mean, remember when what Baptists were known for is that we don't dance? You know, preachers would preach about dancing. I remember that. When I was a kid, I heard that, okay? That is a negotiable, okay? But when the Bible specifically and explicitly calls something a sin, that is a non-negotiable. You've got to determine what the non-negotiables are in your life. And the only way to do that is for you to understand and know the truth of this book. That's it. Let me give you a second thought on how you do this. How do you, how do you choose? How do you stand strong? How do you step across that line into commitment? Secondly, draw strength from community. That's why God gave us the church. That, that's why God gave us a family of believers to come around us in moments when it feels like we're isolated and we're all alone. Determine what the non-negotiables are and draw strength from community, from, from the people of God. And finally, number three, seek every day to be empowered by the Spirit of God. I'm going to tell you there are going to come moments when you're going to be confronted with something. Jesus told his disciples that in the last days, not to worry so much about what you have to say, because in the moment that you stand before a judge or somebody who's persecuting you for your faith, that God would give you the words to say. God will give you the wisdom in that moment. Now, a lot of people think that means we shouldn't study. I think it means we should study all the more. But it, what it means is that if you will determine the non-negotiables, if you're drawing strength from your, your community of faith, in that moment, God himself will give you what you need whether it is for a student at school or in college, whether it is for you in the workplace, whether it is sitting across the table from that person and they're threatening your promotion in the military or in your workplace, what you have to do is rest in the fact that your God is in control. 
There is a choice to be made. Jesus put it this way. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't do it. You can't put one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world and stay there very long. And so he calls us to decisive commitment. Let's pray. Father, some of us in this room have tried to carefully negotiate and navigate a world in which we didn't want to take a stand. But those days are coming to an end. And we're going to have to decide if we're going to serve you with all our heart, if we're going to fear you above all others, if we're going to commit our lives to you regardless of the consequence. I pray for courage and wisdom for those in this room. I ask you, Father, to grant us that grace. And Lord, as the world increasingly turns to wickedness and to lies, grant that we would be pure and holy. And grant, Father, that we would stand for your truth, uncompromising. I pray for those this morning who need to make a decision about Jesus. I pray, Father, for those who've straddled the fence when it's come to him being Lord and Savior of their life, that this morning would be a day when they make a decision for Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen.